0: If you will tonight, as we begin our time together, we're going to start in the book of Revelation, and Revelation chapter 2 and 3, as I want us to once again consider from the pages of Scripture, how it is that Jesus builds His church. If you recall last time together from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 16, we saw that Jesus says that The church is his, and we understand why that is. It is Jesus who purchased the church with his blood. It is Jesus who's also uh, building the church. And that the church that Christ is building is one that will stand the test of time. It will stand the trials that will come against it. And that's not necessarily just speaking about a local church, but just the universal church Of the true church of God, and that Christ says the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So, as we're thinking about this idea of Christ building his church, before we launch into all of what I want to share about that tonight, I want us to come here to Revelation 2 and 3 because it is here in these two chapters that Jesus is evaluating seven local churches that are in seven seven different communities. And as you read through all seven evaluations, one of the things that you're going to notice when you look at this, as we're thinking about this idea of how it is God builds his church, how God grows his church, that when Jesus evaluates all seven churches, at no time does he look at the actual sizes of those churches. In fact, it's interesting when you look at them, that five of the seven, he has something against them. And two of the seven, he has nothing but praise for them. And what's interesting about those two is that when you look at their sizes, and that is when you look at how, what's going on in the life of their church and what's transpiring with them, that they're probably the two smallest churches of the seven that Jesus mentions. In fact, if you go into Revelation chapter 2, look there beginning in verse 8 where he's speaking to the church in Smyrna. And he says, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation. And notice what else he says I know. I have knowledge of your poverty. But you are actually rich. And it's that idea there of poverty, when you look at what Jesus is saying, he's saying, look, I know that when it came to the, the financial aspect of this church here in Smyrna and even the facility aspect of this church here in Smyrna, that they were impoverished because of the persecution and the trials and the tribulations that they were had been facing and they had more to come in the area in which they were existing and they were living. But yet, notice Jesus says that they were rich Though they were one that he spoke of as being in poverty, he also turns around and says, but you are rich. That is, they were rich spiritually. They were rich because they were faithful to Christ. And they were faithful to the cause of Christ. Unlike the church at Ephesus that he refers to right before this, this was a church that was deeply in love with Christ. And there was a love that was overflowing in their heart for Christ. And though they were about to face more trials and more tribulation, and he's even really speaking about many of them were going to die and die for their faith. He is praising uh, this church. If you look over in chapter 3, the church at Philadelphia, beginning in verse 7, it's an interesting statement he makes about them. When he says in verse 8, I know your deeds... And again, when you think about what he knows, he's saying, this is what I know about you. This is how when I'm evaluating you as a church here at Philadelphia. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. And it's that phrase there of a little power that Jesus is making about them, that he's evaluating them, where he understands that because of their their size at this time, they have very little influence in their community where they were. And he knew that there would be a temptation for them to compromise the message, compromise the the gospel, compromise the cause of Christ. And that's why he's even praising them that though they have a little power, he says, you've kept my word. You haven't denied my name. Even the synagogue of Satan and all the things that were going on there, he's he's praising them because you have kept the word of my perseverance, he says in verse 10. And but I point these things out to you and not to say that what Jesus was teaching here that that means smaller churches are always more godly than large churches. Jesus wasn't speaking here against mega churches at all. And he wasn't saying that we can someone can use an excuse from this, that a church is to be a small church. That's not what Jesus is saying there either. And he's not even saying that a pastor and the people of a church and a congregation shouldn't be desiring for their church to grow and and because they should. They should be desiring that because they want to see what? People saved. They want to see people making professions of faith. And they want to see those who are believers growing in their faith, growing in their faithfulness, growing in their commitment, growing in their walking with the Lord. They want to see all of these things transpiring. But I do come to these just to remind you that of these other churches, the five churches that he brings out, That no doubt they were larger churches, more active churches than the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia. Which you can even understand at that time because they're just fighting to survive with their actual physical life. And though these other churches were larger in those ways, Jesus was not pleased with them. He was not pleased with them in fact, some of them he even makes mention of as you follow through the track from the first church there in Ephesus all the way down to Laodicea, the last church there in Revelation chapter 3. It's interesting when you follow that, what you see is, is that more and more as he goes, actually there are more and more unbelievers in the church. That is, there's fewer believers in each of those churches as he keeps walking down them, those five that he speaks against. Beloved, just a reminder of that, if we think about it, the largest church in America today is really more of a false church. The 25th largest church in America today is led by a false teacher preaching a prosperity gospel. And just just a reminder as we think about that, as we're we're desiring and looking at what, what Christ is doing, as how he's building his church. That is we're looking at Scripture and we're learning these things as we all have the desire for Christ to continue to, to build his church and to build it through us and, and, and what He wants us to do and how He wants us to be and what He's called us to be, that we want to trust in Him to do that and looking to him in the pages of Scripture. So if you recall last time when we were together I said when Jesus builds his church or when he was building his church there the early church that he did it in several ways obviously when I say several ways that is he did he used different avenues for the gospel to go forward because it's going to be the preaching of the gospel praying for the gospel to go forward that Christ brings people to himself but he did that and we saw last time that Jesus was building his church, first and foremost, on true professions of faith. And we walk through the book of Acts to see that, starting in Acts chapter 2, then over in Acts chapter 4, then over in Acts chapter 8, then over in Acts chapter 10, and then we move over to chapter 13, where God sets apart the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, and they go out and spread the gospel, that as they're doing this, we're seeing the church grow through true professions of faith, because it grows as the gospel goes forward, as people are hearing the gospel, receiving the gospel, believing the gospel, then God God is adding to the church that the church was growing in that way. And what we are to learn from that is is that if there are to be professions of faith, then there must be the proclaiming of the gospel. For someone to, to believe it and to receive it, they have to hear it. And if they're going to hear it, they're going to have to hear it from us. We're going to have to have the, be the ones sharing it with them. That is our responsibility. Yet we also learn that Jesus was building his church through the professions of faith. But we also learn when we walk through the book of Acts that he's also building it by the providence of God. By the providence of God. That it was the Lord that was adding to the church. As many as the Lord called to himself. And how we can apply that and thinking through that is, is that as we go out and proclaim the gospel as we go out to fulfill the responsibility and walk in loving obedience to the call and the great commission that God has given us, as we go out to do that, we trust that God is going to bring that about, the growing of His church, according to His timing, according to His providence. Let's say you set a goal that for the next 50 weeks, You're going to go out and and talk to either a hundred people or a hundred families. That is, two people or two families a week. But as you do that, you know, and I know, we both know, you can't make that person come to Christ. You can't make that family come to Christ. You go and you plead with them and you beg them and you proclaim the gospel to them and you pray to God for them, but you can't do that. You you can't make them. Oh, I know know many and not all of you are just like me. There's sometimes you just wish you could go to people and somehow shake them. And if you shook them enough, somehow they, they would wake up and see their need of Christ. Beloved, we know that's not the way it happens. We know it will all happen under God's providence and He's working in their life. But now tonight, I want us to see a third way in which the Lord builds His church. And He builds it through what I say is through power. That is through the power of the Spirit and through the power of the saints. And really, in some ways, beloved, as we're looking at this idea of Jesus building through the power of the Spirit and the saints, it's that same tension or that same uh Balance. You have to look at when we're thinking about he's building it through the true professions of faith and he's building it by his providence. He's going to be building it by the power of the Spirit but also by the power of the saints. And by the saints, what I mean by that is by the power of the lives of true believers in the church, their life being transformed by the gospel. But let's think about it first from the power of the Spirit. And what I mean by that is, is, as we go out to share the gospel, we know that we need the, the power of the Spirit of God to be upon what we're saying, what we're doing, to God to work on their hearts. We even go back to Jesus himself in the gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. If you remember when Jesus stood up there in the synagogue of his home, of his hometown, and he he opens the scripture, and he reads the scripture, in the reading of that scripture, he reads the scripture which says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and has anointed me to go forward and proclaim the gospel of the good news. And this is what we're kind of talking about in the power of the Spirit. Now, in some sense, we already have that ourselves. In that, when you go back over to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 1, and in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus was talking to his apostles, and he told them to go back into wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit of God to come, and he says in verse 8 of chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2. They're there on the day of Pentecost. They're there gathered together in prayer. And it's the Holy Spirit that comes upon them. And when he does, this group of men were full of the spirit of God and Peter being the lead spokesman for them stands up on the day of Pentecost and begins to proclaim Jesus to thousands of people that are gathered there especially they've been gathered because of the miracle of the speaking in tongues that was taking place that day and some of them are even interpreting what's going on saying these guys must be drunk. I mean, look at what they're doing. Look at what's going on. And it's why Peter says, these men are not drunk. As you suppose. But these, this is the pouring out of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit had come upon them. And they were empowered by the Spirit to speak forth. And he begins to speak to them. And in verse 22 of Acts 2, men of Israel, listen to these words calling them to listen. And he begins to explain the gospel and explain who Jesus is to them so that they would believe upon him, repent of their sins, and put their faith in him. You see this? You go over to chapter 4 of Acts. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 4. Here... Peter has the opportunity to speak to a group of people. And notice again what it says in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak. You see it, you look over, look at chapter, look at verse 31. Peter had been arrested, then he was released. He goes back to the believers, they gather together and they begin to talk about what it is that has happened, what's going on, and they are just excited about what God is doing in their life. And in verse 31, it says, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. The power of the Spirit or if you go over and look in Acts chapter 11 for a moment. In Acts 11. It's speaking about Barnabas. In verse 24, he's a good man. But he's a man that's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought To the Lord. Go over. Just for a moment. Just kind of thinking about this. Or just you can listen to this. If you want to. But do you remember what the Apostle Paul said? He reminded what he did. When he came there to the city of Corinth. And he proclaimed the gospel to them. He tells us over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That in In verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The power of the gospel, the power of the Spirit of God. That's why he says when he's writing back to the church at Thessalonica, and listen to what he says there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5. He says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Paul, just like Barnabas, just like Peter, just like all the other apostles, beloved, that they go out and they're there in the demonstration of the Spirit of God, full of the Spirit of God, speaking forth the gospel. Understanding we are relying upon the Spirit as we go out to proclaim it. And again, as you think about that, there wasn't anything special that Peter did, Paul did, Barnabas did, or any of the other apostles, or even those that scattered throughout their area because of persecution, proclaiming the gospel, and seeing people come to Christ. It was just the the moving demonstration of the Spirit of God in their life, and in their preaching of the gospel, whereby it says, as it says over there, I think in Acts chapter 11, that the hand of the Lord was with them as they went forth proclaiming, and people were being saved. You see, beloved, it is essential that we understand the power of the Spirit and the providence of God as we go out to proclaim the gospel because it helps to keep us from from pragmatism. It helps to keep us from compromising the gospel. It helps us to understand also that that means there's no... One way, there's no certain way, there's no actual medium in the sense of which we go out to evangelize and preach and pray for people to come to Christ. There is no guaranteed way of seeing results come from that. You see, you can pray and you can preach the gospel and we can be a church that does that faithfully Sunday morning, Sunday evening. And sometimes you may see some saved, many saved, and sometimes no one is saved. Or you go out to share the gospel personally with people. And as you're doing that, and you're praying for them, and you're being faithful to the gospel... You know, sometimes some folks may get saved and come to know Christ. Sometimes you may get to lead many to Christ. And sometimes you can go through periods in your life that as you're just as faithful as you were the the months before, and yet no one is coming to Christ. And any event that we plan, we can plan and pray and promote and do all those things, but there's no way we can guarantee that there's going to be this massive amount of conversions or just a little amount of conversions or some conversions. There may be no conversions. Versions, We don't know. Because we have to go out in the power of the Spirit of God, trusting in God, trusting God to work. In fact, it's interesting because go over to Acts chapter 6 for a moment. Let me just kind of show you this. Because it's interesting, you know, we've seen with Peter and Paul, and Barnabas. But notice what happens with a man by the name of Stephen. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 5, Stephen is one of those that was chosen, he was one of those that was full of the Spirit and of wisdom in verse 3. And we're told in verse 5 that they chose Stephen, a man. He's full of faith. He is full of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing wrong with Stephen in that sense. We're even told down in verse 8 Stephen is a man that is full of grace and power, and he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So here is a man full of grace. Full of the Holy Spirit. full of power. God is working through his life, working through his hands. This is a man in which miracles are happening. And he's proclaiming the gospel. He's able to speak forth truth in an authoritative way from Scripture. And yet, we see in verse 9, some rose up to argue with him. They were unable to cope with him. I mean, this is a man again, full of faith, full of wisdom, full of grace. They could not cope with his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They couldn't cope with it. And what ends up happening to Stephen? Do they fall on their face and embrace Christ? No. They stone him to death. They kill this man of God full of grace, full of power, full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we're told over in verse 54 of Acts chapter 7 that when they had heard this, all of what he had to say, especially when he brought the message home and he made it personal to them. You see, it's one thing when we are preaching And you can speak in generalities. And we can sit and listen. And I can sit and listen. And we can all hear what's being said. But it's when he brought it home directly to them in verse 51. And he says, you men are stiff-necked. And you are uncircumcised in the heart, uncircumcised in your ears, and you're just always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You have received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you do not keep it. And when he turned and got pointed with them, when they heard this, when they heard him say that, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But notice he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's still full of the Holy Spirit as he spoke these words to them. And yet we see what do they do? In Verse 58, they drive him out of the city and they begin stoning him. And they went on stoning Stephen until he fell asleep. That is, he died in verse 16. But what I'm trying to help us to see here is that we, we understand the power of the Spirit. And we understand it in light of the, 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 the providence of God. Because if you think about it, on the day of Pentecost, Peter, a man full of the Spirit, full of grace, full of amazing power, speaking in tongues, speaking in foreign languages that he had never studied or known before. And he stands up and speaks that day, and thousands get saved. And now, just some days later, Stephen, a man full of grace, full of faith, full of power, full of mercy, full of uh, the Spirit of God, stands forth and speaks. And as he speaks, those people are cut to the heart. But they don't come running to Stephen like they did Peter and say, what must we do to be saved? They come running to him, to grab him, to drive him out of town, and to stone him to death. Just understand as we look at this, how God works, and that he grows the church, and we just trust in the power of the Spirit of God. You see, beloved, as I read through the book of Acts, if there's one thing that God guaranteed, let's take the life of Paul. The one thing that God guaranteed Paul as he went out to proclaim the gospel was, Paul, I guarantee you, you're going to suffer. That's what I can guarantee you. In fact, if you look over in Acts chapter 9... When Ananias shows up there and and the Lord is speaking to him because Ananias doesn't really want to go um, talk to Paul or who saw at that time because he's heard about him. And verse 13, he says, "'Lord, I've heard from many about this man, "'how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. "'And here he has authority from the chief priest "'to bind all who call on your name. "'But the Lord said to him, go.'" For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Do you remember what Paul said over in Acts chapter 20 when he called the leaders of Ephesus to him because he knows he's probably not going to see them again? And notice what he said in verse 22. Acts 20 verse 22 he says and now I'm behold I'm bound by the Spirit I'm on my way to Jerusalem and I don't know what will happen to me there except this the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying the bonds and afflictions that's what awaits me I don't know what all is going to happen Paul had no idea when he showed up in a city He had no idea how they were going to respond to him. He had no idea if there were going to be some saved, many saved, none saved. He had no idea about that. The only thing he knew is that when he showed up, he was going to suffer. The Spirit of God had testified to him about that. And so, beloved, what I'm saying is as we look at how God builds his church, We see him building it through the professions of faith and providential nature of God. And we see him building it by the power of the Spirit. But also, he builds it by the power of the saints. And by that I mean this. Again, he builds it, he gives platforms to us to proclaim the gospel through our lives being changed by the gospel through our lives being changed by the gospel. Go back, we're kind of just kind of surveying through Acts as we look at this. Go back to Acts chapter two. And we see that in verse 42, those that have been saved, that is they received the word, they have identified with the church, they were baptized. It's about at least 3,000 of them at that time. These are people that are just devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to fellowship. They're devoted to the breaking of bread. They're devoted to prayer. I mean, these are people whose lives have been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So much so... That we see that they all, those who have believed were together. They had all things in common. They're selling property, possessions. They're sharing them with all as anyone might have need. That means they just see themselves as being together there in the body of Christ. Just day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They're taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They're praising God. And notice, they're having favor with all the people. You see, it's opening doors for them with the people. Thus the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Or as we look and we look over in Acts chapter 4 where we're told in verse 32, the congregation of those who believe were of one heart and soul. We just see that the gospel has changed their life. And it's giving them opportunities. Opportunities. In fact, if you look over in Acts chapter 5, we see in verse 12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. They're all together. And this is part of what we were talking about this, this morning. It is one of the essential things as we think about unity in the body of Christ. We are of one accord, of one mind, one soul. One focus, one purpose, same mindset, same motivations. And notice the people in verse 13 are holding them in high esteem. In verse 14, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. You see them ministering to the people in the community in verse 15 and 16. Now, obviously, there's something different going on there that goes on with us. We don't have the the. the apostolic authority of, of doing miracles as the miracles were taking place at that time but we see that because they were using what God had given them to minister to the people and the community that was there and because of their life had been transformed by the power of the gospel beloved God was opening up opportunities for them to proclaim the gospel and to see people coming to Christ this is what we see over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10. The church there and what was going on. Let me just say it to you like this. On one hand, there's possibly there and what we were looking at in Acts where we see Peter was full of the Spirit. Barnabas is full of the Spirit. Paul's full of the Spirit. It's something that God and the power of the Spirit of God comes upon someone and and helping them to speak forth the gospel and share the gospel and share the truth. But also there's another aspect of that, and that is we're all called by God to be filled with the Spirit. That is it's something we're called to do. You say, well, where is that? Well, go over to the book of Ephesians for a moment. And go to Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, we are told, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That is a command. We are commanded by God to be filled with the Spirit. And that idea of being filled with the Spirit is to be controlled, to be under the influence of the Spirit of God. And if you were to go on and read the rest of chapter 5 and move on into chapter 6, what you will see is the fruits of being filled with the Spirit of God. When God's people are being transformed by the gospel and they're being filled with the Spirit of God, it will begin to transform their life in such a way that it will impact the church, it will impact their home, it will impact their work, and it will impact their personal life with God and their walk with God. This is what unfolds when you begin to see there. He says in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. And those that are being filled with the Spirit, this is what will come out of their life, verse 19. This is about the church. They'll be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. Then he begins to talk about in the home and the relationship between the husband and the wife. Then ultimately, over in chapter 6 and verse 1, if we're being filled with the Spirit, it's going to transform our life as parents and as children. And children obeying your parents, honoring your father and your mother, fathers not provoking their children, and all these things taking place in the home, it will begin to to transform our life in our workplace. We pick that up in verse 5 of chapter 6, slaves being obedient to those who are our masters, according to the and then he goes on to talk about those who are the masters, do the same things to them in verse 9, give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours in heaven and there's no partiality with him, and then we move into verse 10 of Ephesians 6, and what we see there is now our personal walk with the Lord, putting on the armor of God on our prayer life, and all this goes back to being filled with the Spirit of God how then are we to be filled with the Spirit of God? Well, it actually brings us right back to where we ended this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Because you go on to read the rest of that and it's very similar to what we just read in some portions there of Ephesians 5 and 6. The word of Christ is richly dwelling within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admon- then you'll be admonishing one another, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, doing whatever you do in word or deed, all, deed, all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to Him. Then it moves into the home again with wives and husbands and children and fathers. Then it moves into the workplace with slaves and masters. Then it moves into your prayer life. So what we see then, when we're thinking about all of this, beloved, is that the Lord will use our life And he will use our our life when it's being transformed by the gospel. Thus, when we are being filled with the Spirit of God in such a way that God's Word and His Spirit has an influence and control in our life and it's controlling our life when we are at work and it's controlling our life with our children. It's controlling our life with our spouses. It's controlling our life in the church. It's controlling our life in everywhere we are and everything that we do. When that is taking place, that's when God begins is to open up those doors of opportunity for us to tell people about Jesus. But if we're not being filled with the Spirit of God, thus the Word of God's not richly dwelling in us in those ways we talked about this morning, of this loving devotion to doctrine and discipling and discipline, then that impacts our ability to go out and evangelize the lost. It all works together. So let me just close it with this. Our response, I pray to this, will be twofold. One, pray for God to pour out His Spirit in an abundant way as we preach and as we share and as we witness for the gospel of Christ. Knowing it's the power of the Spirit. Pray. Cry out to God. And secondly, pursue being filled with the Spirit of God. You see, the first part is really God's business. It was God's business to fill Peter when he spoke, and Paul, and Barnabas, And that's what God does, but God calls on us to pray for that. But it is our business to be pursuing being filled and controlled with the Spirit of God so that our lives are lived differently than the unbelieving world around us. That people look at us and they see something different they see something. so we're just like we see in the book of acts where there's some amazing things going on and because of that even amongst unbelievers they're finding some favor and people are coming to them doors are opening for them but beloved if the world sees or thinks from what they hear and see from us that we're no different then why should they want to entertain our message Why should they want to entertain the gospel? They need to hear and see things differently. And Lord, I I, I tell you, this is convicting in my own heart. This is convicting to me to think about this and to ask the Lord to forgive me of not modeling this and, and seeing these things as I so desire at different times in my life. So, beloved, my encouragement and plea with us is to pray For the Spirit of God to pour out upon our evangelism and pour out upon our preaching and our sharing of the gospel, but to pursue being filled with the Spirit of God. I want to ask you to bow your heads in prayer.